Welcome to A Thousand Tiny Steps. I'm Barb Higgins, and in this podcast, I'll share personal stories of great joy and tragedy and the steps that brought me there. I have become adept at tracing them backward to find the origin of an event, good or bad, that has affected my life. I have gone from being on top of the world with Division I All-American success to being unable to get out of bed with the grief of losing a child and everything in between. I am painfully honest, which can make people uncomfortable, but discomfort brings growth and oftentimes tragedy brings joy. So tie, buckle, slip on, release up your shoes and join me as we begin our thousand tiny steps. Hey everybody, Mark Higgins here. Thousand Tiny Steps, episode nine, and the beginning of season two. So where season one really focused on Jack, and of course, focusing on Jack holds all of the aspects of my life into the story. Season two will focus on Molly. And I think I'd like to begin right away by acknowledging that talking about the death of a child can be very triggering for people that have lost a child, for people that have come close, have had a sick child, for people who just live in fear of losing a child. It's a very triggering topic which complicates its grief. So this is a bit of a heads up that I will do my very best in this podcast to be optimistic and supportive, but mostly honest about what the process of losing Molly has been like for me and what Molly was like and then the many, many contradictions that come with child loss and grief and trauma. And my hope is that for those wonderful angel moms that I know and love so well and those that I've never met can get support here, feel connected, finally listen to a story that makes them say, yes, I get it, as opposed to why don't you get it? As much as I want that to happen, I also really, really want those of you in my life that have had grief and trauma to be able to utilize my story in a way to alleviate your own sadness. It doesn't have to be a child. I had a wonderful conversation yesterday with Amy, sweet Amy. (laughs) Amy was a track athlete for me at Concord High School, and we've stayed friends forever. And she worked with me at the charter school a couple years ago. And she's my handyman now. I have her come when I need work done gardening. She's phenomenal. Anyway, so Amy, Amy Zumez is a very, very important person to me. And we were sitting at the table talking about the podcast and she's been listening and and just talking about how hard it is for me sometimes to understand why people don't come to me for help. And I think the reason they don't come is they feel like nothing is worse than losing a child. And I have to say, I've had a lot of loss in my life and I would agree nothing is worse. But I remember when I lost my job, that was the worst thing that had happened to me up to that point. It was horrible, horrible. I stayed in bed for days. I threw up. I I was a disastrous mess. I could not believe what had happened to me. When Molly died, losing Molly was far worse than that. But the reaction was very similar. Paralysis, staying in bed, throwing up, you know, being devastated. So at the time of my job loss, that was my biggest loss. And if it's your biggest loss, then it feels just as bad as Molly's death felt to me because it's as big as you've ever felt. I talked about my good friend, Jill, and her losing her horses. And part of the surprise for her and comfort was that I would be, that I could draw a parallel between a child and a horse. You know, and people will often say, oh, I know you have it way worse, or I know it's not my child. No, but if it's your worst, if it's your worst nightmare right now, if it's the worst it's ever been for you, then it's no different than what I'm going through. And I, and I often really want to encourage people to reach out and they don't because they feel that I have enough on my shoulders and I do, but I will tell you right now, two things in life make me happy right now. One of them is Jack and his influence on my family. And the other is when I can offer help and support to somebody who's grieving or struggling, especially people who are grieving death and loss. You know, those are, those are just tricky areas. So season two, I've had a hard time getting started here. I've started this episode like five times and 
it was a bit easier starting from scratch because I'm just introducing myself and I can sort of have a rather fluffy feeling about it. Like here I am, yeah, I'm doing a podcast, look at me. And now it's getting real. I've, I've developed a bit of a following, not, not big yet, but that will come. And I realized that it's really important to have conversations. You know, we raise our children now to talk, see something, say something. And when I was growing up, it was, you know, what happens, what happens in Fight Club stays in Fight Club. It was very, very different one or two or three generations ago. So, you know, Molly and Gracie were taught to speak up when they saw something and not be afraid to be themselves. And that's what I want for Jack. So I'm speaking up now about things that we often just keep so quiet about. And these next episodes will, will share wonderful, joyful things, and they will share horrifyingly terrible things. And I will do my best to, to balance it out as much as I can. So when I think of A Thousand Tiny Steps, the name of this podcast, when it comes to Molly, there are times that Gracie and Kenny and myself, and maybe other people that loved Molly, will think to themselves, the beginning of the end of Molly. And there are so many times I think of an event or a happening or a conversation, and I think, ah, the beginning of the end, because it was something that, that triggers the steps that in my mind led to Molly's death. Whether they did or they didn't, it's hard to pinpoint, but in my processing of all the things that maybe were missed that could have been done or weren't done in preventing her from dying at age 13, you know, my mind will go over and over again to everything I've done. Self-analysis is huge. And, and I know that Gracie does it. And I know that my mother does it. And I know that Kenny does it. And it's one of those things I've mentioned before that when people come to me and ask for advice on helping people with grief, supporting them where they are. And if I need to go through these steps 500 times to be okay, then I just need support in that. I get lots and lots of feedback on both sides from, from how maybe I would feel better. And most of this feedback comes from people that haven't lost a child. And what they want is for me to be happy. And while I have moments of happiness, I don't believe I will ever truly be happy all the time. It's impossible. And it's because I love Molly and I want her here and, and she isn't. This is you know a big piece of what I struggle with and what I hope sharing my story about Molly can, can give to others. The beginning of the end of Molly, I would have to go all the way back to Gracie being born. <laughs> Kenny and I were just going to have one baby at Gracie. That was who we were going to have. And about a year into her life, it dawned on me that her siblings, her half siblings were going to be adults most of the time she was growing up and she would be by herself. And who would she wait for Santa with and who would she commiserate with? And so we made the decision to have Molly and it was a, a one try and here was Molly. And so just under two years later, Molly was born. And if there was ever a perfect balance in two little girls, it was Gracie and Molly. The strengths that Gracie had, Molly could use, and the strengths that Molly had, Gracie could use. And they were just symbiosis in its purest form. And many times throughout their lives, people would say, boy, that's like one child, like one soul, like one spirit. They really, really complemented each other well. Gracie had a very, very simplistic, wide-eyed view of the world, and everything was happy. And Molly was, you know, analyzing everything and always assuming something terrible was going to happen and having a hard time deciding because what if you make the wrong decision? So whereas Gracie took everything at face value, Molly overthought it to the death. Molly was very, very good at structuring time. Gracie was not. Gracie is very good at structuring things. Molly is not. So on a typical school morning, you know, Gracie would pack all the bags and everything else while Molly did her hair, brush her teeth, and ate breakfast at the same time. Gracie had that methodical way of performing her actions, whereas Molly... <laughs> Molly took after Kenny in that regard. She had one speed, whether she was on time or late, <laughs> she went the way she went. When it came to studying in school, Molly was just academically such a genius. She just was so smart and she was so, so good at helping Gracie in a really non-judgmental way. 
she was a confidence giver to Gracie. And in turn, Gracie was to Molly. When Molly would come home and share in private her thoughts with Gracie, Gracie could hug her and love her and give her love and support. Early on, as you know, as little kids and siblings will do, they would fight. And when the fight fights began to be about each other and not the subject of the fight or the disagreement, I would intervene. And if I had to think of one good thing I did as a mother, it would be that. When Molly and Gracie would start getting into it, once the name calling began and everything, I'd intervene and stop it. Look, you can be mad at each other for the thing, but you don't name call. You don't bring the person into what you're mad at. You're mad about something, not at something. And so we spent a lot of time, and I would say again and again, you two will be best friends forever. When you're 80 years old and you've raised your kids, you'll, you'll see why I'm like this. And so as they got older and could take more guidance in this, we came up with a safe word, I call it a safe word. And our word was pineapple. And, you know, sometimes little kids don't have the right to say no. We teach them say no if you don't like something, but adults don't often honor no. And so I told Gracie and Molly that when something got to be too much, pineapple, let's just say the word pineapple. We had, a, I think we had a picture of a pineapple at that time. So if they were fighting and one of them said pineapple, it, it had to stop, whether it was resolved or not. And if I could hear it and, and it didn't stop, then they knew that there was going to be some hell to pay because I would separate them and we would work it out. And as the years went on, they became unbelievably good at doing this. More than once, I remember walking through the living room and there's one of them on the couch pouting. And I'm like, what's going on? Oh, we're just having a pineapple. You know, and they would, they would have to separate and calm down and then either resume it and do it properly or put it away, hit the pause button and put it away until they could come back at it. And this was throughout their whole life. And so as they went through growing up in elementary school and middle school and getting into their activities and dance, they really were able to support each other in ways that were profound. So when I talk about Jack and his purpose for being here as being so spot on and purposeful, I feel that Molly was really purposeful as well. And I truly, truly feel that she was here for Gracie. And it was one of the most difficult things for me to accept that, that I could pray to the universe to have a baby for Gracie and Gracie gets her baby and they are phenomenal and it's better than I could have hoped. And they love each other and then God or whoever it was would take her away or I would be stupid and lose her or Kenny didn't do something and she's dead or the doctors didn't do something and she's dead. Like I just, it was so difficult for me to accept the fact that they had each other and they needed each other. And one of my worst memories would be driving from Concord Hospital to Hanover in the middle of the night with Gracie next to me and Kenny in the back and just trying to prepare Gracie for what I knew in my gut was probably true, which was that Molly was gone. It was horrifying. So then as I looked through their childhood and all of the things they did together, I realized that they really were one, one unit. Now, depending on your thoughts and what you think about life, they can still work together and do many things to make the world a better place. I think our souls are connected forever. But the physical realm is so separate and closed off for most people that it's very, very hard to know what you're doing potentially or possibly be connected to somebody that's passed away. So these are some of the things that, that have come along in my sort of process of tracing my thousand tiny steps back to the beginning of the end of Molly. Molly and Gracie were incredibly close. And I think they often, you know, told, told one another things that were secret and personal between them, which of course is fine. I think in the wake of Molly's death, Gracie wished that she had shared more with me about how Molly was feeling. Lots and lots of things came out after her death that I was unaware of. That was all of us. You know, there, there were things I could have said, questions I could have asked. I have two or three moments, moments in my head that will forever haunt me that I could have been more forceful here, or I should have said this, or I should have done that, or I should have stayed home or whatever. And Kenny as well. Kenny was the person within the last two doctor's appointments. And I'm quite sure he walks around with that burden all the time. So these are the things that, that sort of come to the forefront. Molly and Gracie had 
a really good childhood. Kenny and I had our struggles and those struggles amplified as the years went along and as Molly and Gracie got into middle school and high school age. They together were wonderful and had a really, really good life. And Gracie will comment on that. Gracie gave this amazing speech at her graduation, the memory chair, and talked about what it was like to lose Molly and what could she pull from it, what could she learn in her grief. It was phenomenal. That part of my life, those 15 years from the birth of Gracie, getting married to Kenny and the birth of Gracie to Molly's death, so that would be 15 and a half years, were, I actually can't even put myself back there now because until you've had a horrifying tragedy, you know, in the year 2000 and 2001, I hadn't lost my job. I hadn't, my family hadn't become decimated and I hadn't lost a child. And so there's a certain naivete that we all live with and we should live with it. And until you've had the worst happen, you can't wrap your head around the fact that there could be another side to these things. And so when I look at look at that, those years of my adult life, they seem like they happened to someone else. And, and as the years go by and it gets further and further away, you know, we're at, we're at five and a half years now. In a year from now, we'll be halfway through Molly's life. <laughs> That's mind boggling to me. And I know the day will come where she will have been gone longer than she was here. And that will be a hard time. All of these things are difficult and tricky, but the time warp is palpable. My life before Molly compared to now can't be compared or described using the same words. Happiness and love on both sides, yes. Sadness and grief on both sides, yes. But Molly on one side, no Molly on the other. It's just very, very, very tricky. In dealing with Molly's death, here's Gracie now, Gracie without her Molly. And I've, and I've mentioned it before that Gracie's done some unbelievable growth that perhaps she wouldn't have done or needed to do had Molly stayed in her life for, for her entire life. There's no good or bad there, but the, the Gracie that Gracie has become is phenomenal and shows her pulling what she knew and loved about Molly into her life. You know, a family of four, dance competitions, first day of kindergarten, you know, middle school transitions, concerts, violin, you know, chorus, dance recitals, all of the things, holiday celebrations, Christmas Eve, Christmas morning, all of the things that go along with raising a child and having traditions, same Christmas ornaments year after year. Okay, Easter has passed. We can talk about Halloween now. All the wonderful Halloween costumes, all the things that we do. You start to develop traditions. And I have a very hard time with that now. I, I don't want a tradition because if something happens and you can't continue it, it just feels like a loss. This, and this is part of my process in losing Molly. But we had a very, very typical life that way. Each year brought certain things that happened year to year. We also had horrible struggles. Kenny and I had terrible financial struggles. We had personal struggles, marital struggles. We divorced in 2014. You know, we've remained living in the same household and moving our family forward. But the Kenny and Barb that said I do is a very different Kenny and Barb that exists now. Again, is there a judgment to that? No. Life comes along and, you know, throws things at you. <laughs> you keep throwing a rock at a glass window, eventually it's going to break. And that's just sort of how life is. And then you have to learn to live as a broken window. And how do you put yourself back together or become a different kind of window? In starting season two, I've gone around and around and around with how do I do this? Do I just constantly describe Molly and make it this long story? Do I talk about issues around child loss and grief? Do I talk about, you know, what it's like? I'll talk about all of those things. And I think what I'll do is I'll pepper the stories with current things in my life now, because this is such a process. This podcast is a process. We have Molly and Gracie. We have this amazing sisterhood bond. We have the obituary in which I write, the person that will miss Molly the most is Gracie. All of those things are true. And then we have this life, the life without Molly and how we've tried to piece it together. And, and I'll get into all of those things as this season goes along. But in terms of child loss, 
it's such a much bigger, uglier loss than, than most any other kind of loss. And let me clarify that for a minute. Death and taxes, that's the big joke, right? What are the two things you can be sure of in life? Dying and having to pay tax. And ultimately that's true. We all know that we're going to die, but we also know that the majority of people live a long life and they have children. And most children grow up and they have children. And you have grandparents and great-grandparents. And, and is it sad? Am I going to cry for days and days and weeks and weeks and months and months and years and years when my mother dies? You're damn right I am. I don't want her to die, but she will. But she's my mother and she's almost 80. And you know, so, so it's the natural order of things. Our parents die when they're elderly. I'm in a place now where a lot of my high school friends are losing their parents and, and sometimes older siblings and people that graduated high school 10 or 12 years ahead of me. And, you know, I remember when I, when somebody lived till 70, I thought that was a long life and like 12 years away from me. Oh, thank you. I'll live until I'm hundred, please. Child loss. None of us push a baby out and hold that new baby on our chest and think, oh, someday I'm going to watch you die. We just don't. A thousand tiny steps later, and you're putting that little baby in a pink casket and putting that casket in the ground. And what's wrong with it is it just goes against and defies all the laws of nature. Children are not supposed to die. They aren't supposed to die, period. They do. They die all the time. So maybe they are supposed to die, and we're missing the point. I'm not quite sure how to wrap my head around what the truth is or if there is even a black and white truth. I think there isn't. But the tragedy and trauma of child loss is uncomparable. And when I see it and witness it in my groups, when local families suffer tragic loss, and I watch those mothers and fathers and siblings struggle, make sense of their new life, like why us, why this? I realize that it's far more common than we like to think. And so when I get into what you lose when you lose a child or a sister, so I was going to say a father or a mother. So let me clarify a little bit. I realize this is a bit choppy. I think the parent loss that is equally as traumatic as a child loss is when you have a child that loses a parent. Like no three-year-old should lose his mother or father. No 13-year-old girl should have to go through puberty without her mother. You know, no, no 18-year-old boy should have to enter manhood without, without his father. So I would, say, I would qualify caretaker death and, you know, sibling death, people your own age, as sort of an equal in the trauma zone in terms of not following the normal laws of nature. And I know adults that have lost their mothers when they were you know, young adults in their late teens, early 20s, that they go through their adult life and raise their families. They don't have their mom or dad to do that with. You know, my parents have been a huge piece of my life. What do we do now? What does this type of trauma do? And then what can I possibly say that would make this any better? Well, I can't say anything to make any of it better, but I can share with you what I have found in child loss. And since this next season is about Molly and losing Molly, I can preface it by saying I'll talk a lot in these episodes about the following things. I'll talk a lot about my professional losses in the death of Molly. People immediately assume I'm not right. And maybe I'm not, I'm certainly not wrong, but, I, but I'm not the barb that I was. And so people that knew me before patiently wait for me to return. I didn't work, I didn't work a day for about 10 months after Molly's death. And then I worked about three hours a week for several weeks after that. We had the love of family and friends. We had incredible, financial support in the in the weeks and months after Molly died so that we as a family could take care of ourselves. Gracie had to go to school maybe two days a week for her sophomore year. She missed a ton of school. The losses, and I would count that as professional for Gracie, her, her schooling. We had to sort of figure it out. And he was sick and on dialysis at the time. So his, his life, his day-to-day life was probably the most unchanged because he had been losing the ability to do much anyway. So his ability to stay in bed all day not that it was easy, absolutely not, but it, it didn't interfere with things like it did for Gracie and for myself. 
Did that make it easier for him? No. So you have all that professional loss and then you have social loss. I'm amazed at the behaviors, good, bad, and ugly and wonderful of the people in my life. I've never had a big social group where I would you know, plan things and go out and have dinner parties and things like this, belong to book clubs. I've always been far too busy and my life has always been swallowed up by the young people that I teach and coach. And that has always been my focus. And a lot of my socializing came in my athletic events and my athletic activities. So I would have social interactions with those people, but you know, not like, oh, let's have our annual Christmas party. We did that for a couple of years, but it really wasn't our thing, you know, and, and it wasn't sort of how we were. I'm a unique person socially anyway. I've gone through a lot in my small town. So people look at me and have a whole Googleable list of things to criticize or judge me for or be in awe of me for or wonder about. And so Molly's death added to an already pretty public life that was at sometimes pretty controversial. And so in the wake of child loss, I've had incredible change in people I trust, people I hang out with, people that I felt believed in me that don't. I, you, you learn so much when these big bad things happen. It's like, it's like you know, your skin is peeled away and, and the real you is right there. I think Gracie has had some social things. I remember she went back to school and, and nobody knew how to treat her. And so everyone was just quiet and sort of stared at her. And she, what she wanted was 9,000 hugs and we're glad to see you and thank you for being back. And, you know, socially, we don't know how to interact. And it goes back to, well, leave them alone, leave them alone. You know, people say to me, well, I don't bring up Molly because I don't want to, I don't want to hurt you. Well, I already hurt and I love talking about Molly, but I get it. You know, these are things that people would, would think. You know, I don't want to bring up that I know Molly because I don't want to make you sad today. Look happy. Well, talking about Molly doesn't make me sad. You know, Molly being dead makes me sad. That will be forever. There are those losses. And then familial changes. So one of the biggest fallouts of child loss is divorce. A lot of families can't handle it. And my thoughts on that are we all need our families to get through it. But the mother that Gracie needs, is her heart, is the mother she had before Molly died. Well, that mother doesn't exist. And the Gracie that I need is the Gracie that existed before Molly died. And that Gracie doesn't exist. And the Kenny that existed before Molly died doesn't exist. And the nanny and the friends, nobody is the same. And we're all looking for what we're used to. We're all looking for that familiar support. And when I think of, you know, Kenny and I had spent years estranged anyway. So not that Molly's death brought us closer, but it certainly solidified the realization that to get through this in a healthy way, we had to do it together. That it had to be. Penny and Barb and Gracie. We had to unite as best as we could in our broken times and be there for one another. Gracie and I slept on the floor for two years. I've talked about that. Our family events, the family Christmas party that I've gone to every, almost every year of my life, really, since I was born, didn't go back to for like three years. It was too much. It was just too painful to go without her there. When I remember that first year, my family, they made a quilt and they all decorated squares with fabric paints. It made us this beautiful quilt about Molly, which was makes me cry now because those little gestures are just so kind. You know, you just have divisiveness in the family and everyone has an idea of how it should be. It can be hard for me when, when a family member doesn't notice an anniversary or something like this. And I realize, well, Molly wasn't to them what, what she was to me. And of course I'd remember it, but it still hurts. Does that mean everyone should run out and make a list of these things? I don't know. No, I suppose not. But when somebody remembers that it's Molly's birthday or remembers that it's the first day of school and Molly would have been a a ninth grader. And, you know, I have a neighbor and she bought those little yard signs that congratulate your senior. And she bought one for Molly, put it in my yard again, it makes me cry because it's just somebody remembering that Molly existed. Those things are huge, but these are the things that come along with child loss. And I think the biggest thing that comes along with child loss is the sense of a manageable reality. 
and I've used this, this analogy a lot, that it's like an earthquake or a, or a tsunami and there's complete chaos and you're in survival mode and then the, everything calms down and the Red Cross shows up and then, and then the dust settles and the Red Cross leaves and you're still sitting there completely damaged. You know, we, we have mental health issues in our country that are astronomically out of control right now and grief and trauma and loss rank right up there. And it can be so easy to judge, you know, a little boy was missing and then found deceased. And I was so angry, just angry. My initial response is to get mad at a mother or a father that would hurt their child and bury that child somewhere. And you know, all I was was good to Molly. You know, why did I have to lose a child when these people don't deserve their kids? And that, that's a very quick judgment on my part. I can't even remember who I was talking to. It was very recently, but I had someone say to me, now, now, think about the mental, mental health issues, the things going on in our country right now, and how sick and damaged we are mentally, and how difficult it is to ask for help. And one of my school board member friends, Jonathan, gave this amazing speech. He won a civic award. He talked about mental illness. He talked about his struggles and how inept and inadequate <laughs> health professionals and legal professionals and people are in general with how to deal with mental illness. And that's a, that's a very, very tricky tricky piece of child loss and how to, how do people treat me? So those are some things that go along. And I realize that this is with any, any loss, but to those of you listening that have a child in heaven and have lost your adult parent or have lost your, your grandparents or have had to help a pet cross the rainbow bridge. Yes. These are horrible things, but if you've lost a child, realize that, you know, I would lose a, I would lose 50 elderly relatives to have Molly be alive. Nothing against the elderly relative. I just want Molly to have her 80 years like they had theirs. And that's a tricky way to feel. And not a lot of people understand that. One of the other things with child loss that I found is that the dads and the siblings are often ignored. There is so much support from mothers and mothers are better at creating their own support groups. Not that fathers aren't, but when you, when you look at, when you look at society, actually having a, a little baby boy, when Gracie was an infant, no one called her a little woman. Hey, little woman, how are you? No one said that to her. It's a little princess, little teeny tiny. And you bring a little baby boy out and they call him little man. Well, he's not a little man. He's a little boy. And so I look at the messages we send our little teeny tinies about what they're supposed to do with their little bodies. And I think men, little boys and big boys and young men and old men really feel this pressure to sort of hold it all in and be strong and survive and be a leader. And you're not allowed to just sit and talk about your feelings. I have learned so much from some of the grief dads in my journey here. I've talked about Vinny, this boy Vinny comes to me sometimes. And he was one of the first people I noticed when I went online after Molly died and his dad has a support group, an online support group. That's a private group for people that have lost children. And it's unbelievably helpful. If I'm having a rough time, I can put, I'm having a rough time. And I'm flooded with love and support. And you need to talk and tell me what's going on. And, you know, I'll go on there and, and there's a post about Molly because he knows how much he loves to see posts about his son, Vinny. I have a local friend, John, who lost his son. And shortly after Molly died, he invited me for coffee. And we sat downtown and talked and he was unbelievably helpful. And so I noticed in grief and trauma that oftentimes the dads have as much to say as the moms and need the love and support as much as, as the moms do. And then the siblings, you know, I think it's tricky. There's all this online support for moms and dads. And I realize that children are minors. You can't have these private groups with kids without someone facilitating it. And now you've got an adult and moderating it. So what happens? Lots and lots of groups have, have efforts for children. And there are online events that young people can do. There's a group called the Moyer Foundation. Moyer was a pitcher for a team out West. Can't think of it. Maybe Seattle. 
he started a foundation, the Moyer Foundation, and part of it, a little girl named Erin, her make-a-witch was to meet him. And she was worried about her sister. And so she said, please, please start a foundation to take care of kids, to take care of the sisters and the brothers that lose people in their family. And so that's was born Camp Erin. And Camp Erin exists in every town that has a major league team. So Boston, the Red Sox, Camp Erin has a, a Boston sort of chapter. And so there's, you know, the major league baseball goes into Canada and all across the United States. Now they're starting to branch out. So Camp Erin is free. It costs nothing for people, for children to go. And it's for, I think, six years old through 18, like school year. And it's a three day, three days and two nights. So Gracie went a year, a little more than a year after Molly died. And that was a phenomenal weekend for her because she just got to be the sister. It was all about her. That weekend was a turning point for her. And she still communicates. You know, that was four years ago now. And she still, she still communicates with some of the girls that were in her cabin at Camp Erin. These are some of the amazing things. Some of my online groups, there's a grief group called Ellie's Way. Any of you who are listening who have had any traumatic loss, not just child loss, that the Nigro family that started Ellie's Way lost their daughter Ellie to a tragic in-home accident. And what they did was they started a nonprofit, an online support group. And Ellie's Way covers it all. It separates it into who you lost, how you lost them. You know, I, I often spend time in a side group called a sudden loss because Molly was alive and then she wasn't. That's very different than spending 18 months with your child dying of cancer. You know, both have the terrible ending, but it's a very different emotional and mental process. I, I've mentioned before that in having Jack, I go online a lot and read people's questions and the answers. And I do the same thing in my grief groups. I don't post all that much, but boy, do I respond when something resonates with me. And sometimes I can ease myself back into a calm state just by reading a question and the 300 people that responded to that question. And that's, that's a huge, huge, again, positive side of social media. This is a part of losing Molly. What has Molly's death given me? A group of mothers, a large group of children whom I will never meet until I cross the rainbow bridge myself. It's given me a bit of a, a support and a background and, and help in managing and finding happiness and feeling okay. The other big piece of child loss is guilt. You know, mothers, we grow our babies. Now, now let me be clear, adopted mothers grieve the loss of their children just as much. So I'm, I am not, I have to be very careful here because I just want to be clear. But I do know that when you grow a baby in your stomach and I had a great therapist that shared this with me and I saw like a, I posted something on Facebook the other day. When you grow a baby in your stomach, you share it in your blood flow. The blood book, flow goes out of the baby and into the mother and, and back into the baby and back into the mother for nine months, you know, you're sharing yourself with another being that is growing there. The other thing that happens is, is your brain creates neuropathways connected to the child. The child creates neuropathways connected to the mother. So there's a neurological connection. That's why when a child cries in a grocery store, a mother's milk will leak if she's nursing or agitation is great because the neurological connection triggers the mother to protect the baby. So if you go back to when we lived in the woods and all the mothers were with the kids and all the dads were out hunting for food, it would make sense if a baby cried, it was the mother that would quickly respond. And then if the mother cried, it would be the father that would respond. And that's how they all would protect one another. You see it in animal animals all the time. In our modern society, it isn't quite that way. But I remember wondering like why it should be getting better. It should be wearing off. And my therapist said, no, the, the neural pathways between a mother and a child don't wear away so quickly. They intensify because they're not getting responded to. So a child crying in the night, crying, 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 and why won't they cry themselves to sleep? Well, whatever's wrong with them isn't necessarily sleep-based and they're not being responded to. 
the agitation gets worse. The neural pathways are screaming now, answer me. And then, so I remember in the nights after Molly died, that summer, especially, I would wake up in abject panic, utter panic. And I could not stay. I had to get in the car and drive. I had to listen to music. I had to scream. I had to go to her grave and, and touch the words on the stone with my fingers. I had to yell into the ground. Oh my gosh. I, I had to somehow answer the neurological firing in my brain that Molly was in danger and I had to find her. And she couldn't respond to me, not neurologically. <laughs> so that was a huge relief for me, actually, in my grief process and really, really helped me turn a corner in the self-blame and the self-loathing and the, the bargaining and let me go back and do it differently. Because I understood that along with the emotional part was the neurological piece. The really practical things I had to do was drive my car a different way, take different routes places, establish completely new routines that had nothing to do with what my life was like before Molly. And that's a balance in and of itself as well. So this series of podcasts, these next few episodes, I will share with you in, in the most orderly fashion I can, what it was like to finally have Molly and Gracie. Actually, I didn't have them until I was 38 and 40. What it was like to lose Molly in much more detail and what those days and weeks really looked like leading up to and in the wake of Molly's death. I will also try really hard every episode to include someone or something that's helped me or a person that's going through this or some sort of current piece as well. Because although I'm not here to be a service, I just want, I just want to tell my story. It's cathartic for me and helpful and therapeutic. And if somebody can pull something from it, then I've, you know, I've, I've eaten my cake and had it too. But I do feel that there are so many services out there that are just for the taking for people that are struggling that we don't always know about. Because the only people that know about them are the ones that are in the struggle. And so maybe my podcast and maybe these stories will help in those ways as well. I think that's it for now. I, I think that right now I just need to prepare my listeners to be ready for some pretty difficult stuff to listen to and some amazing stuff to listen to. And please, please, I get, I get plenty of feedback from people I know. And I actually would love to give shout outs. You know, I have, you know, a woman named Sherry who I met years ago that lives in Texas and she found the podcast. I haven't talked to her in, you know, 10 years. And then a girl I went to high school with who's also in Texas, <laughs> she messaged me and said, Hey, I, I came upon your podcast. What, what a great reconnection. So her name is Mary Beth. That part's really, really neat. My mother came to visit and a friend of hers listens to the podcast. This isn't somebody that I hang out with at all. You know, I've, I've mentioned that, that what's surprising and comforting to me is the wide variety of people that have decided to tune in. So I will try to keep it interesting and brief. I will try not to say um so much. And I will try as well to really, really, really try to tie in and pull in and include as many people as I can that were a part of Molly's story, because that's an important piece as well. So way back in the beginning of, se of season one, I feel if those of you who are watching, if you look behind me, I said I was going to change things up a lot. I think I did that twice and then I didn't. Typical Barb, start and don't finish. But I have a different hat here. So this was this is Jack Jack's little fedora. I'm holding up this little cute fedora. I had that on my wall. And what I have on my wall now is a pink ivory Ella hat. It's a baseball cap. Molly wanted it for her birthday so much. I remember we ordered one. Gracie and we did it right in front of Gracie <laughs> or maybe it was with Gracie we did it right in front of Molly this is where it gets scary I don't remember which was which Gracie will tell me at any rate two ivory Ella hats they have little elephants and proceeds from this business go to saving the elephants from poaching for their ivory and their tusks and so that was very important to Molly that you use companies that support something that was important to her and she didn't like the fact that innocent animals were killed for a piece of their body 
So I have Molly's hat hanging there now and, and I'll figure out a way to get Jack's hat back in the picture. Maybe I can just hang it up right here. <laughs> we'll have both of them. As always, now that we're really talking about Molly and her foundation and her purpose, which was to make people happy, I often think that we think we're expected that happiness is a given, that we should be happy. And when you really, really read the Constitution or the, or the Declaration of Independence, if you really read the Bible or any religious book, never once have we promised happiness. We're promised that we have the ability to find it. We're promised that, well, some rule-based religions will say, if you do this and this and this, you'll be happy. I don't know if that's always true, but I do know that we are provided with tools and mechanisms to bring happiness and to receive happiness. In this process, in the, in the months since Jack has been born and going through all of that hormonal up and down and a tad bit of postpartum depression, which I didn't talk about at all, but that can come later. Find ways to make yourself happy. Find ways to make someone else happy. Find ways to bring happiness to somebody. And there are a million ways to do it. Kenny comes home with coffee all the time. Coffee for everybody. That's just a nice small gesture. You know, if you work at a facility, leave it clean and ready for the next person. Small gesture. But that person walks into work, happy. Something is done. I always try to do all the laundry and have it done ahead of time. Not that anybody maybe notices, but in my mind, I feel like I'm helping ease the burden of somebody else's busy day. Little things that we can do. And, you know, I like doing laundry, so it's therapeutic for me. So it's not like a huge sacrifice, but, you know, and then things that make me happy. Well, Jack-Jack makes me happy. Gracie makes me happy. Making her happy makes me happy. So there are just so many ways. And if you're sitting in a place right now, if today's a day where you can't function, then don't. Close your eyes, take big breaths, do what you need to do to feel better. So you can be happy tomorrow. So anyway, welcome to season two. Thank you for listening and have a great day, everybody. Hey, thanks for listening and for supporting A Thousand Tiny Steps. I hope you enjoyed the episode and will continue to listen. Feel free to leave a review and share my stories with your friends. Also, please reach out if you have stories to share. I love hearing from and connecting with my listeners. If you would like to know what I'll be talking about down the road, you can find me on Instagram at barb underscore 444, on Facebook as Barb Higgins, and at my website, www.1000tinysteps.com.